a man who sought freedom, a life off the beaten path. He chooses rural living away from the concrete jungles. Old MacDonald had a farm, and on that farm he grew corn. But what if I told you those very stalks of corn would be the bars of his own personal prison? A man who sought autonomy, whose life is now dictated by a market of uneducated consumers who willingly poison themselves, all for the allure of simple convenience. This, my friends, is the dimension of imagination. It is an area we call the Twilight Zone. Against the Mob podcast, where you hear myself, Logan Carpenter, and my co-host, Matthew Billingsley, explore the world of libertarian ideas and free markets and the way it can improve our life uh, while trying to gain a better political perspective in all on the landscape that we all live in here in America. Uh, so today we have uh, an, a farmer on that we have. Uh, he's going to be going by Bob the Farmer today. He wants to go under an alias so that we're not... Uh, disclosing and bringing any of you uh, radical libertarians to his front doorstep uh, just to make sure he <laughs> doesn't get doxxed by the psychos that do happen to listen to the show here. Um, so Bob is out from the, the West Texas area here and has a lot of experience in the farming industry. Um, so we're going to examine the inner workings of that uh, industry today and kind of what it's like to work within the governmental control that is over the farming apparatus and the way we produce our own food. Uh, we're going to discuss kind of the current events, what's going on with the war in Ukraine, uh, the sanctions against Russia, how the supply chain interruptions with COVID uh, have ex uh, increased prices and, and changed the way it is and what it is to be a farmer in this nation today. Um, and because we're libertarian dorks, we're also going to touch on what it could look like to have a free market economy to truly be unburdened by the regulations of government and what that would look like for us today and uh, how it would pertain to the farming industry. Yep, yep, yep. Very, very happy that you uh, joined us, Bob. We appreciate your time. Uh, we appreciate you uh, reaching out to us through the Against the Mob podcast network to um, come on and chat with us. Before we get going, though, I do want to thank our sponsor. Um, every time I this this is near and dear to my heart, um, Public Hangings for Pedophiles, PHFP, is a grassroots movement that is dedicated to fighting human trafficking and pedophilia. Two things that we can all agree are, are abhorrent and need to be abolished. PHFP also makes a donation every quarter to another organization that is in the trenches with them. In Q1 of 2022, they made a donation to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. PHFP also just dropped some new dope swag, um, new patches for your plate carriers. So if you're looking for some really cool merch that supports the show, supports PHFP, and also most importantly supports survivors, go to PH-FP. 
ashfp.com to get your stuff. Public Kings for Pedophiles, Turning Awareness into Action. Bob, thank you very much for joining us. Oh my gosh, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I am a friend of the pod, as they say, so I'm getting so much inside baseball (laughs) right now. This is so much fun. (laughs) That is always a fun part. There's like two types of run-ups to a show when we have a guest on. There's like one is, you know, what do we want to talk about? What are we going to get into? And then the other ones, we have somebody who is a listener of the show and they're like, hey, in this episode, what is this about? What are we talking about here? And and both are equally fun, but it, it is cool to be like, okay, somebody's listening. And has some opinions on the show. That's always uh, pretty cool to hear and to, to bat back and forth on. <laughs> Absolutely. If you want to be criticized, I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Might save that for the next episode here. We're going <laughs> to focus on the farming yeah. today, Bob. We'll uh, we'll get into your criticism. Customer feedback. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when it comes to this farming industry, I guess the, the area we should start is just to kind of get a general overview um, what is it like being a farmer in America? What are the the difficulties that you see in your landscape and, and how is it uh, affected by the interference of the government into your free market? Absolutely. I guess I kind of need to establish some credibility uh, probably. So we are in the part of Texas that relies fully upon underground water in order to grow basically anything. We live in the middle of Cal cattle country so if we weren't able to pump water from the underground aquifer there would be no farmland here it would only be ranch land it would only be grazing cattle grass-fed beef that type of thing and there would be no towns basically there are places that have gone back to that and now there are ghost towns and i'd just like to establish a setting in which you know, there is economic prosperity to a region where there would not be economic prosperity without agriculture in the way that it is at this time. That will not last forever because underground aquifers are a finite resource. And we have, as a society, agreed to, to use that resource for economic prosperity for a given point of time or for a given amount of time in a specific location. Based on demand, and that's a large part of what I want to get into is the public determines what farmers grow and how they do it more than farmers determine what they grow and how they do it. Mm, that's really that interesting. Makes that, uh, meeting the demand in the market. I actually had a, a portion of that I wanted to get to later, but we can even start with that is um, We've seen this kind of hyper focus, especially in recent years, on how evil GMOs are. Oh, you can't affect the foods this way. Where these evil farmers are manipulating the genetic makeup of our crops and making this a lesser product. But what people are overlooking on that is before we had GMOs, we had starvation, and like we we actually had to develop these new methods in order to keep up with the population that the world has and to be able to produce enough uh, method. And obviously, there is a negative effects of that. We are our animals. We went through this evolutionary process eating natural things. That's why when you eat a tomato from the grocery store, it's a lot better for you than when you eat something with 57 ingredients in it. Uh, we're not made. We didn't, we didn't evolve in a way that has produced to digest trick cereal as well as we digest an apple. Um, but with that said, you do have to produce enough food. Eating a, a dramatically modified food is still going to be better than starving to death, at least in most people's eyes. Um, and I think that's an interesting 
topic maybe to start on there is, is how much that is really affected just by uh, the overall demand. Like you said, digging into this aquifer, uh, Matthew and I grew up around the Ogallala aquifer. Uh, and I know that that's, I think it was tapped into maybe in the seventies and it's like well below 50% at this point. So we've, we've basically drained that dry. Um, not, not the most sustainable practice to keep uh, depleting all of our resources in order to keep up with this, uh, I guess at this point, not growing population, but what I would consider to be probably be an overpopulation. Yeah, it's definitely not sustainable. However, does that mean that we should or should not do it as we are developing technologies for the future and solutions for the future? And it's probably a bit too early to get into the should we or should we not philosophy of, of utilizing resources. But I am a bit unique, I guess, in the sense that I'm a bit of a health nut, a bit of a careful person about what I eat. Most of that comes from the fact that my son is lactose intolerant. Because of that, I figured out that I was lactose intolerant and that sent us down a, a spiraling rabbit hole of alternative milks and, and all the above. And more so than actually being a farmer, I got into, you know, all of the natural grocers uh, side of food based upon that rather than actual farming. But it is important. Sure, that's a uh, a topic of of like going into all these different types of foods. Like I, you know, I really prefer an oat milk over a soy milk. Is a constant conversation you have with other blue collar farmers out in the middle. Of the <laughs> right, right, right. But specifically, so we grow corn for cattle consumption. We grow corn for human consumption. We grow cotton. We grow alfalfa for cattle. And we grow wheat, but the wheat is not the priority in this area. Wheat is kind of a, a lower cash crop that you can make a buck off in a pinch. Although wheat prices are kind of skyrocketing, a lot of more people are taking wheat to grain in the area than they would have previously. But that's just to say that the food that we grow, the, the food grade corn that we grow, is limited by what our buyer can do with it. So there's non-GMO white corn that they use for various things. Most of that is being demanded in Europe right now. There's GMO corn in whites and yellows that can be food grade, that can go to different places. But in a given year, we can only grow GMO or non-GMO based upon what buyer, you know, our middleman has in his pocket at the time and so it's all demand driven and that's what i think people really don't realize when they demonize farmers or try to you know simplify the process as it's all just kind of corporations making these decisions for us it's not that simple it has a lot more to do with government about lobbyists about special interest groups getting you to demand something that is not necessarily what you would demand if you were more educated about the topic. And then we have to react to that because of how expensive it is to produce those things. Yeah, that makes sense. So back to, before we move on though, cause you, you already led us a nice segue into something else, but I, I, I want to stay on the GMO, um, non-GMO production right now. Can you kind of explain the difference in yields between the two? You know, does does one particular um, 
give you more wood and without it, is it even sustainable? Right. Like, cause you said that you have, um, you guys are growing food for both cattle consumption and for human consumption. That's the really interesting thing about corn is there's two competitive markets for it. That you're, you're trying to feed people, but you're also trying to feed the beef that will then feed people. And, um, I guess it just, can you elaborate a little bit on, on, and on ethanol. yields? Ethanol is a large part of the current price equation as far as non-food corn goes, but um, that just comes down to what a GMO versus a non-GMO actually is, and that is the incorporation of traits that allow you to spray products like glyphosate, which is Roundup, over the entirety of your crop or protect it with built-in insecticides that are naturally, you know, averse to certain pests and which the crop yields are the result of better plant health and also better breeding in the sense that most crops that are grown are GMO crops in in regards to corn. And there's a lot more research money put into breeding better varieties in those crops than the non-GMO crops because there's not as much demand in the non-GMO crops. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. It does. And I think that it's, it's worth just pointing out that GMO does not mean that it's, that it was created by some evil corporation to slowly poison you over, you know, 50 years of consumption to, to, to to like lessen your genetic pool. You know, I think that there is, there is that stigma around GMO and and in the end of the day, there's lots of things that you, that we consume that are genetically modified organisms, right? You know, right. Um, oranges I mean, is, you could make us. the case pretty strongly that, yeah, that every, everything we consume now is genetically modified. I mean, even if it, and it sounds like the, the GMO distinction, I think I've maybe misunderstood. Did you say it, that has particularly to pertain to the kind of roundup ready stuff, the things that are resistant to the pesticides and that sort of thing? It's become a term that is used to describe roundup ready products. Okay. But genetically modified as a term in and of itself, as language in which humans relate to each other based upon an agreed definition, like you could say that you're genetically modifying something by doing selective breeding. Right. But and that's, that's kind of what I always pointed to when people demonize GMOs. It's like, man, I had a, a grandfather who was just a rancher and he would intentionally document the growth rate and the birth weight of each calf. And that way he knew which ones he wanted to sell because they were born larger or didn't grow as fast in favor of the ones that were smaller so that we didn't have to pull cattle out when they were burning them. And yet they would still grow to a large size and and be sellable at market. Exactly. Which is technically genetically modifying them. I mean, just in the way the language works. If humans have any impact on the natural selection or evolution of of another living thing, which plants are, you could say that we're genetically modifying them based upon our inputs. They're providing outputs. Right. Right. That is interesting. I'm glad that you said that about, uh, so I I probably didn't understand the argument that's being made in the, the larger uh, farming community there in that GMO specifically is kind of used now to refer to the stuff that is roundup ready. Like you said there. Um, Right. And so the question then becomes, if we are simply talking about chemicals that are synthetically derived being applied on the crops that we eat, mm-hmm. which is what 
if someone's educated about the GMO topic, that's what they're actually talking about is whether or not there's negative health effects associated with glyphosate consumption over 50 years, mm. which we don't have data on. Like we don't know the answer to that. We have, you know, an FDA that the state has put in place to protect the populace from hazards such as this that approves these chemicals at a certain rate at certain you know amounts that you're not supposed to break those rules and they're applied on certain crops they're approved for certain crops and not other crops and so there's strict rules to follow and as a farmer part of the reason i wanted to be anonymous in this is because i can talk about the actual perils of abiding by those FDA bylaws and, and regulations and things like that. In reality, it's extremely unpleasant to work with those chemicals and dangerous and hazardous, but it's also extremely silly the way that organic crops and non-GMO crops are marketed as healthier options to people because the practices involved in growing those crops are oftentimes just as or more you know sketchy than than a traditionally raised crop all right well um elaborate for us please as far as the perils of you know applying synthetic chemicals you have things like spills and you know designated areas where you can dump chemical that you clean out of jugs like there are regulations around the disposal of things like if you were to paint your house you can't just throw the bucket or you're not supposed to just throw the bucket of paint in the dumpster (laughs) at the end of it and let that go to the landfill like that's actually against the rules you're supposed to dispose of that properly yeah you have to put it in a fire pit and make sure it burns off all the emissions (laughs) there you go and so we have to fill our application rigs with like 1500 gallons of chemical that if you were to take a bath in would do very bad things to your body. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And we just have to play with these things and hope that they don't farming is one of the the most dangerous things on the planet. Like as far as dangerous jobs go, it's, it's up there, if not the biggest, Uh, I don't want to make any claims there that are non-verified, but no, that's, that's fair. It's a dangerous job. Sure. And a lot, a lot of that is dealing with heavy machinery is a big part of that. But the other part of it is long-term adverse effects from dealing with these chemicals very closely and getting them on your body, getting them on your hands, having something blow up in your face, not wearing a respirator when you're supposed to be applying a respirator and there's talcum powder and graphite and all these other things flying through the air. Mm-hmm. So there's just, health risk after health risk health risk as far as the actual farmer is concerned but when it comes down to the food that is in the grocery store there are other things to consider that aren't i believe that aren't associated necessarily with the gmo conversation like we we abide by those regulations and labels strictly you know, very carefully. And so the amount of harmful chemicals that are actually on your food, whether you're eating a GMO crop or a non-GMO crop, you you shouldn't worry about that. I believe as a health concerned person myself, you should be more concerned about what you're putting in your body 
and like what is in the inherent properties of say you know inexorbitant amounts of red beef for example or or milk or anything like of that nature more so than you should be opposed to conventionally grown crops that are being regulated by the FDA they have some science behind them to say that they are safe as far as we know and we have to feed the world <laughs> you know we've I mean? deemed this tomato safe enough for the peasants to eat <laughs> which is there but i think you you there ended you on a really good point though it's that it, it's not that it's not that there's some you know evil cabal of farmers saying like oh perfect the fda is going to allow us to spray a little chemical on this and we can slowly poison the peasants and therefore kill our um our consumption base but it's it's more so that you guys have to feed the world and I think yeah. a lot of people really do overlook that fact is that with more and more people um, on this planet every single day, even though the developed nations birth rates are declining, it's not declining so uh, sharply that that it's having any meaningful impact on the short term. And you have developing nations with yeah. exploding populations that have to eat. And I think a lot of people really yeah. do overlook the fact that people like you are not trying to just be a part of what did you call it the monocrop corporation um and as a force for evil that it's that it really is out of like the benevolence of the baker and the butcher that you have your breakfast we can get into what that actually means i said that prior to the actual recording about <laughs> monocrop and like you know the general zeitgeist around agriculture being everybody's depicted is that we can get into that in more detail but i want to come back to a, a second half of the second half of your question, or maybe the second half of my intro, which was the non-GMO organic crops are sometimes as sketchy, you know, in reality, as the producer, as the regular crops are. And the reason for that is you're forced to not use the regulated products. And so when it comes down to your bottom line as a farmer who's trying to grow an organic crop to take advantage of a premium that exists in the market, basically you still can't let that crop get eaten up by bugs. You right. still can't let that crop grow up in weeds or you have no return. You, you lose your crop. You go out of business, your family starves. Terrible things. And so what you do is you utilize methods that are either non-regulated and based upon what I would consider, you know, uh, witch doctory, <laughs> you know, pseudoscience, pseudoscience, right? <laughs> bury, bury three crows on the right side of your northern end of the plot. <laughs> or, or you apply chemicals to those products and you conduct fraud around it to cover it up. Mm. And there is, an, there is an insane amount of that happening in our food today. The, the non-GMO really organic stickers that they put on food, in the same sense, I watched that Seaspiracy documentary where they put the, the dolphin safe sticker on top of all the seafood and all that kind of stuff. It's hot garbage. Like they just slap that sticker on things and they have no way of actually knowing <laughs> what went into that food. Yeah, that's that makes really a lot of sense. I, I did a, a stint in that uh, NRCS office in my hometown, National Resources Conservation Services. When I was, a, I think I was still in high school working there in the summers. And and part of the job was to go check the uh, CRP crop, which is essentially 
a program that started from my understanding during the Dust Bowl, where they were encouraging farmers not to till up their land to, hey, we have to get some root systems here so that we don't have these gigantic dust storms. Um, so the government still subsidizes some farmers to basically not do any production on their land. Uh, if you apply for the CR CRP uh, program, uh, and part of my job as a young guy was to drive out there and check it and make sure that they were regulated correctly, not doing anything with the CRP they weren't going to do. And they constantly, I'd come up on one where they just had cattle on their CRP, which is one of the no-nos, not supposed to be grazing it. And I would come back to the office and, and report that to my boss. And uh, I believe 100% of the time, the answer I got back was like, well, ah, he's a good guy. Don't worry about it. We're just not going to document <laughs> that one. <laughs> That's, um, I want to, I want to ask about just because just because I know the audience of this podcast, I'm I'm going to play devil's advocate here and just push back against the FDA and regulations. Um, not because I don't agree that there there should be some sort of oversight, because I am a minarchist at the end of the day, the night watchman state and protection against fraud is one of the things I think if you're going to have a state, it should be involved in. Um, food say like food that is safe for consumption or essentially like you can commit food fraud, like you said. And I just want to push back though about just regulations and FDA, right? So why are we supposed to, devil's advocate, why are we supposed to trust you and the FDA when you guys say that, okay, well, we can have X amount of this chemical on our food when we also know that they approved uh, thalidomide and that had children with stubby little arms that came out three years later. Yeah. The alternative is grow your own food. No, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the answer. Like it's it's that easy to dismiss. However, um, you know, I have legitimate firsthand experience and some certain horror stories that right. So I was gonna give a specific example around a real concern that I've had firsthand experience with that I'm you know slightly afraid to talk about, and I probably would not say this, you know, in a way that I thought was going to cause a public panic, but there's something called fumonacin, which is a toxin that plagues ears of corn when there's... Is this the one that looks like a large bluish mold that forms on the tassels? Not blue. That's just called head smut. And that's okay. not going to hurt you. Okay. That's just a, you know, a, t a typical thing that's, that's not a, a bad thing for humans. But fumonacin is a toxin that is produced by the fusarium bacteria. And if there is fusarium bacteria in your soil, which there is, I would say, everywhere, it can develop in certain conditions that are made... Um, that are exacerbated by weather. So okay. if you have a, a wet series of events in a certain period of time, it will flare your fusarium bacteria, which will result in a flaring of the fumonacin toxin in the corn that you produce. And it's actually and in it. It's not on top of it. Something that can be scraped off. This is something that's embedded into the actual corn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And this is a known thing. Um, Texas A&M has a department, a regulatory department that the government relies upon 
to take samples of this as corn crops are harvested throughout the region, as does every region in the world that produces corn, right? It's one of the big things that we watch because it's known to cause birth defects in humans. It's known to like melt the brains of cattle if they eat too much of it. Mm. It's a very, very scary toxin at a certain dosage, right? And so basically every corn cup that is produced has a certain level of fumonacin. And they mix that with clean corn to lower the dosage per serving. And so like for your crop, Joe Farmer, to be sold as food corn, it has to have a fumonacin parts per million below a certain level. Okay. And for it to be sold as cattle consumption, it has to have fumonacin below a certain level. Which is slightly parts higher than human, than food grade, correct? Right. The, the standard for food grade corn is higher. Okay. Gotcha. But there is fudging that happens. Mm-hmm. There is mixing that happens in order to keep farmers in business, which we want. I mean, that's a whole different discussion about why you want to keep farmers in business in regards to government subsidies, which we subsidies, which we can talk about, you know, post-World War II things that happened and how they changed regulation of farming. But basically, that is a real concern that people don't know about because honestly, the special interest groups and the lobbyists want to keep people worried about GMO and organic rather than the real, real poison that's in their corn <laughs> real concerns about health in general i mean the overconsumption of meat products the overconsumption of dairy like all these things are played down the reason nobody talked about health during the covid epidemic pandemic like nobody talked about you know being a healthy person and having a good immune system right. all that is just to support special interest groups and whatnot like it's it's a lot more complicated than the public gets a clear picture of. And so then it's kind of like point, uh, cigarette companies writing all of the anti-vaping ads and the, the uh, war on drug being funded by tobacco companies, <laughs> that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. There's always more complication than, than you think there is. Yeah. And so I guess at that point, that's kind of the counter argument that you would, that you could pose to somebody like the anarcho-capitalist who's going to say, well, um, we don't need any government regulation. The free market will decide. How does the free market really decide what a healthy or you know or non-healthy level of something that you don't even know is in your corn really is? You know, and that's one of those things that it is that that when you talk about that, it, it does help make the argument. Well, okay, maybe not all regulation is bad regulation because that sure. was something that I'd never even heard of, and it does and not. If hurt you were my growing feelings. your own corn. If you How were would I your own corn? You would have no ability to test it for that at mm-hmm. all. And then, how would I even know that it, I needed to be testing it? Exactly. Mm, like we're that's... talking severe birth defects in the consumption of this stuff. Mm. Is it pertain particularly to corn, or does that go for other uh, crops as well? 
It's it, just a, a toxic. It affects it affects other crops. I only know about the details of it in relation to corn because I'm a corn farmer and that's the only food that I produce. Right. And I'm sure that corn, I mean, the way that we use corn in this country, at least, I'm not sure if it's a, I'm sure it is worldwide phenomenon at this point, but I mean, corn syrup is ingredient number three on just about everything we consume. It's there's there you corn go. in everything. That's the reason I'm a corn farmer. Mm-hmm. That brings us into the hemp conversation. There's a reason I'm a corn farmer in this area. It's not because corn is the only thing I can grow. It's because corn meets this magical combination of bell curves where it's the thing that I can grow the most of at the highest price. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that is determined by public demand. If the public was demanding something else that I could grow, like chili peppers, I might be growing chili peppers. Don't bother. New Mexico's got that covered. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming for you, New Mexico. <laughs> the land of enchantment. <laughs> Don't bother. Hatches got you. They are proud of them in New Mexico. <laughs> it's the only thing that we can be proud of. We're we 50th a, in uh, education, 50th, like 49th in crime. It's, you know, they are, really the only thing. To give, to give the listeners an insight into the fanatical love of Hatch and their own green chilies, I had a gentleman in the restaurant one time who was telling me, our green chilies are fine, but we need to order them from Hatch. To which I replied to him, these are Hatch green chilies. And he said, no, you don't understand. You have to get them from Hatch, New Mexico. And I said, well, the box says Hatch, New Mexico on it that I get uh, shipped to me every month. It's their Hatch green chilies. And he's like, no, no, you have to get your green chilies. So at that point, I just walked away. But it, it was a, an interesting <clears throat> back and forth with this guy just to be like, do they? these are all coming from Hatch, bro. These are the green That's chilies a- you're talking about. That's a marketing thing. Yeah. Like champagne is only supposed to come from the champagne region of France. Right. Right. Like that's a marketing thing. It's not the hatch green chili is the only place that you can grow green chili. Right. It's just that they've kind of monopolized that marketing term. They got a great trademark there. Sure. And they make great chili. Nothing against those guys. I wish them the best. <laughs> Bob the pacifist. <laughs> not trying to hurt, no. not trying to upset anybody. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm I don't want to come time. across I don't want to come across <laughs> as an entity of of my peers. Like I'm anonymous right now and I'm calling out you know a lot of things that I find interesting to talk about. Right. I have nothing against green chili farmers. I just think they're dumber and uglier than most farmers. No, this, this brings us into the second phase. You know, when I said two magical bell curves meet and how much we can produce and at what price that's because it has so much overhead involved with growing a crop. That's the other thing people don't realize is that, there's so much money on the line in producing a crop and you producing a crop is fully dependent on three things, your actual green thumb, your ability to ensure and market that crop and the weather. And if any of those things falter, you've got two bad years before you're on your ass. So you've lost everything. That's in a good sustainable practice too. I mean, a a farmer who's not, as uh, up to date and, and as well established, it, it could be a lot shorter in two years too. 
Yeah, that's absolutely. So, so run us through, run us kind of through just kind of the cost associated. You say you have overhead. I mean, Logan and I have an understanding because we grew up um, around this type of stuff. But for the average person that may have no idea about how much a combine costs, um, you know, how much, how just kind of just kind of run us through some some basic numbers if you don't mind. Sure. So let's let's do like a cotton math thing where you guys can kind of research market prices. And, and if anyone wants to do any afterwards research, uh, they can do it. But basically cotton around 90 cents right right now, you know, give or take, which is great. And 90 cents to what? Pound. Okay. 90 cents per pound. And so that is also dependent on the quality. Uh, the micronair, which is basically the length of the fiber, the amount of trash in it, the color in it. There are all these different variables that affect the price of your cotton. And any one of those variables can absolutely kill the price of your cotton. It's not like I grow cotton, I get 90 cents for it. It's not like that. That comes down to variety selection and your personal practices on your farm producing good quality cotton that affects that price being stable or better you know what i mean but then take the price of a cotton stripper called a a round module baler which is basically what people at least in our area across the states use now which has the baling mechanism and the the burr removal mechanism i'm sorry i'm getting very technical right now go for it people probably don't realize that cotton is like a tree like it's wood the cotton plant itself is wood and the the actual plant material around the cotton fiber is very abrasive it's when it dries up it's very harsh you want to get it away from the cotton fiber and so these machines are incredibly co- complicated you know today we have one machine that does the job of three machines previously <laughs> and 500 slaves <laughs> And oh my gosh, you know what? Yeah, get into that. That's a whole different deal. But basically, one of these modern machines costs six hundred thousand dollars, give or take a hundred thousand. And we have seven of them. We have seven of those machines, mm-hmm. and that's just the harvesting capacity of what it takes to produce a cotton crop at ninety per, ninety cents per pound, give or take your quality or your loan rate, as they call it. And so incredible numbers of debt that these farmers have to take on in order to plant this crop, grow this crop, and extract the crop. So much overhead. We employ, give or take one or two, 25 people. And all of those people and the families included, you know, are. 100% dependent on those three factors that I mentioned previously, our ability to market the crop and ensure the crop, the weather. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, the other one's just your green thumb ability. The green thumb. Yes. The agronomy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, and so that's so, so just alone in the car in the cotton harvesting aspect of your farm, you're in over $4 million just to harvest it. 
Well, that's just the strippers. Then you have just the strippers. <laughs> I'm sorry. We call them strippers because they, the kind of machine that we use is a stripper. It strips the plant versus. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. That's and, way too technical. <laughs> yes, yes, we all make jokes uh, equating it to yes. the other kind of stripper. That's one of the favorite traditions yes. on a farm. <laughs> Absolutely. I do think but it's also, interesting. Yeah. I've seen a lot of the the brain dead takes of like. Uh, I saw somebody posting, obviously a very left-leaning individual who lived in the middle of some metropolis city of like, I'm tired of this uh, idea that farmers are poor farmers. This is a $600,000 piece of farm equipment. These aren't small business owners. These are millionaires. And it's like, you're completely overlooking the overhead, the labor, the training, the production, the buying of the seed. Uh, I had that saw that recently somewhere online where somebody was saying the same thing about restaurants. Where they're like, restaurant prices have increased steadily over this past uh, couple years, and yet, like for what reason? There's just ex- exploitation. I'm like, well, labor costs more now because nobody wants to come to work for ten dollars an hour, especially in a hot kitchen. Uh, production costs more because of all the COVID shutdowns. My electricity bills higher. Like there are tons of factors when the market of another area increases that I depend on to produce a product. My product's going to then therefore increase as well to compensate for that increase. Absolutely. And you guys, the main thing that that person left out, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. The main thing that person left out when they were making that, that uh, argument was the risk. Mm -hmm. Mm. They completely left out the risk. Yeah. There's so much that you put on the line, especially with that much money involved in, I mean, that's farm equipment is not cheap. It, not cheap it costs at all. a lot in order to get the uh, the entry fee into that industry is not nothing. Uh, and if something goes wrong and you don't have all of your ducks in a row in insurance, and even if you do have all your ducks in a row in insurance, I mean, you can lose lose an entire year's worth of production just for some bad storms. In many ways, it's gambling. <laughs> Absolutely. In many ways, it's gambling on the weather and it's gambling in the markets. I want to note real quick that Farmer Bob, when he said it's basically gambling, did not have the inkling of a smile or a shine no. in his eyes. He I, was 100% sincere. I, I laughed. Statement. I laughed, but the face definitely was. <laughs> he is serious. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so let's just keep running through some some food production costs, just because I, I think that it, it's beneficial for people to get a, a just somewhat of a basic understanding of of how much money is involved because this conversation kind of is driven by the fact that everything is going up. Inflation is driving up food prices. Food prices are being driven up because of supply chain issues and availability and of equipment and nitrogen and all of this other stuff. And so I think this one hits home for a lot of people. So, so let's just keep running through. I mean, what are, what's it, how much, how much does seed cost? What's it cost to run a sprinkler on a circle? You know, all of these just like kind of basic things that most people probably don't even know exist. I mean, basically, if I was to give you numbers, which I don't have, because honestly, what I do in the farm is day-to-day operations, HR, technology, uh, logistics, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And we have other people that run that aspect of it, the marketing and the accounting and all that other stuff. However, I can tell you that it's a lot and I can yeah. tell you that it's going up. For example, yeah, I- in relation to the fertilizer crisis you know, which has been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine and, mm-hmm. and COVID and everything else. 
you know, I don't know what the number is, but something like 300% inflation in the price of fertilizer. And what that translates to on a real level for us is that we chose to fertilize less with, with what's called dry application broadcast fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer. We chose a much more dangerous and labor intensive method, which is anhydrous ammonia for nitrogen to grow corn. Basically, people used to do that a lot more than they do now and have stopped because it's incredibly dangerous to handle. It's extremely unpleasant. It takes a lot of time added into your tillage applications. And basically, it's a gas that you have to drag behind your plow and inject into the soil. And if you get it on you, it will burn you. And if you inhale it, it could kill you. And we don't use that anymore because of those fears. But this year, 2022, for this crop, we went back to using anhydrous ammonia because dry synthetic was so expensive. How difficult is that to get your staff ready for that kind of a change for something that, that hasn't been done in a generation or two of farming? That's where I turn into HR mode and I'm like, let's have a conversation about how you get people to wear <laughs> respirators when you're 30 miles away and you can't verify that they're wearing respirators. Yeah. Yeah. We, we I'm sent, sure that's we difficult. One guy went to the emergency room for going and, you know, mm. trying to open a, a valve and the bleeder was <laughs> open and he sprayed himself in the throat with anhydrous ammonia and he mm. went air vec to the, you know, to the emergency room and he turned out to be fine. The gas went down his throat and stopped midway rather than getting into his lungs. Oh. If it had gotten into his lungs, it would have been absolutely catastrophic. Mm, but wow. he had like third degree burns on his face and down his throat. God. Ooh. And these are, I'm sure the majority of your, your staff are going to be younger guys too. And just from my experience growing up and, and doing the, the weekend cowboy routine and building fence out there, there's scars on my hands today because I was just too much of a dumb 18 year old meathead to wear gloves out there. And it's kind of hot and I didn't want to <laughs> exacerbate that's, that. So I'm, I'm sure you run into that with those young guys out there a lot. That's an interesting conversation though. That brings us into another segue, which is the labor pool. That guy was 40 years old. Okay. And he was from South Africa on an H2A visa working for us for a short period of time, sending money back to his family in South Africa. And he should have known better because he's done this before. He knew that we wanted him to wear the mask. He knew he had the mask. You know, you just, you can't be there at all times overseeing these people when your farm spans 20,000 acres, which, you know, translate that into something people can recognize. I don't know. You know, <laughs> many miles. I, I, um, many miles. I come trying to think how, yeah, I can't, I can't do the mental math off the top of my head, but it's a big, it's a big area. You're talking about getting in a, a vehicle for an hour or two to go from one spot to another. You're, you're Most of what at, I do on a day-to-day -day basis is I put, I put 60,000 miles on a vehicle in a year. Driving in a relatively small There's, geographical area yeah, too. Those ain't highway miles. Those are <laughs> a lot of dirt roads involved. Yeah. It beats up your, <laughs> beats up your suspension for sure. Yeah. Careful buying a, an a old cop car or an old farmer's truck. <laughs> <laughs> Take that into the resale value. <laughs> Absolutely. 
that brings us into vehicles, but let's stay on the let's stay on the labor pool topic. That's an interesting one. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is uh I mean, obviously you you and I we saw that as well in our hometown. There were a lot of South African guys. I used to mow lawns as a kid and there were several houses I mowed that were just of the local farmers for their their South African workers they brought in. Um I think a lot of people obviously expect to see immigrants working in this field, but they're probably surprised to hear they're from South Africa. That, the, that's that they're white. <laughs> yeah, white guys from South Africa. I what should is, clarify that, that they are white. <laughs> <laughs> that is a what? complex topic, man. <laughs> is it uh, just your own personal disdain for Mexicans, or is it a slightly more complicated? <laughs> Come on, Logan. Be nice to our guests. Listen up. Listen up. I have reason to believe that our label pool, labor pool, will shift from South African H2As to Brazilian H2As Mm. because it's been estimated by certain people who estimate these things that there will be a lot of labor available from Brazil in the coming years. Okay. That seems to be where the labor force is. But right now, the South African labor force, first of all, let's talk about why we can't hire 20-year-old Americans. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about so, that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good place to start. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, we do. We do. We try as much as we can to do that. Um, let's explain a little bit the job requirements for an entry-level farm hand in an irrigated position on a farm maybe not even our farm but a standard farm across the region you're going to be pulling six 16 hour days you're going to be pulling sometimes 20 hour days getting like four hours of sleep this is a young man's position first and foremost right we need i would estimate like for our farm 16 of those guys that are totally fine and healthy, getting paid by the hour, good money to work their butts off. In the mud, doing hard manual labor, risking, you know, all these things that we talk about them risking, they have workers comp, all this stuff. But if you lift an 80 pound gearbox and you haul it into the mud with your bare hands, you're gonna risk dropping it on your foot. You know what I mean? And this is not a job that America has trained its workforce to want. (laughs) Are you saying that America's youth are slightly coddled compared to the immigration (laughs) population? I would say something to that. (laughs) I would say something to that. That's a pretty good. I actually had that recently at the, the restaurant I work at where somebody did the old, uh, like, why can't you hire people that speak English thing, which is always annoying. And I, uh, I probably broke my customer service mode a little bit because I, I was like, well, I can hire one of the local 16 year old kids and pay him $17 an hour to text on his phone all day. Or I can hire this guy that came in from Mexico who has four kids who moved here with his family, who's worked in restaurants for years and knows exactly what to do. Who's going to have a little bit of trouble telling you where the bathroom is if you ask it. And I would just much mm. rather hire a competent worker, even though I'm going to be the one that talked to all the customers, than hire a bunch of 16-year-old kids that I'm basically just sinking a cost into because they're not actually providing anything to the restaurant. 
Sure. So, yeah, exactly. And so that brings us to what's going on in South Africa, why most of our employees right now at this moment in time, 2022, are coming from there. These are white farm owners in a country whose government has um, had a bunch of changes recently, you know, post-apartheid and all the stuff that's happened since then. All the white people had all the farms. Mm -hmm. And this is not something I like to point out to those people. And the indigenous populations of that country, which was taken over multiple, you know, smaller tribes and things were taken over and consolidated in the country of South Africa by the Dutch and the English. Mm -hmm. And the Dutch and the English got all the farmland and then they lost the government. And then the government is doing nothing about the indigenous tribes of South Africa murdering and taking back that land. In fact, I've I got, think we actually covered that in an episode. They even went as far as to take that land away from them in the legal eyes of the government and, and give it to uh, the indigenous absolutely. farmers. Absolutely. I'm sure there's that. They all bring their stories over. I've got one guy. Most of them are on H-2A visas. I've got one guy and his entire family who are here on assignment because he was shot. Mm. They came to his homestead. They killed all his dogs. They shot him mm. and they stole everything. <sighs> and he is here on asylum, which means that he can't travel back to South Africa to be with his dying parents. Mm. Who are literally dying right now. He can't go back. Mm. And so that's what's happening there. And if you want to, you can have the d discussion about race and racism and all the complications around what's actually going on over there. And it's crazy. Those guys bring crazy amounts of baggage. And, you know, I'm in HR. Like, I have to have these talks with them. It's, it's insane. <laughs> and they say things the in word. <laughs> they say things that I'm not okay with. I say things that they're not okay with. Like, you're talking racism at a very real place as opposed mm. to racism in the in the abstracted version of it that americans right we have know. this this view of these heightened uh racial tensions in our country because it has exacerbated a little bit over the last couple of years uh, especially and i the, don't the mean to downplay but right but there are areas 100%. in this world where it is well Visceral. more exacerbated yeah for sure i i ran into a young kid not too long ago when Trump would, had just won the presidency. And he, he said to my face without sarcasm, this is the highest racial tensions ever been in this country. And he's, you know, 18 year old college kid. And I said, hey, you should look into the race riots of, of the 90s. And like, yeah, right. There were some times when there were some pretty strong racial tensions in this country that I think are much more muted now than they were at that time. Right. Right. And I, I want to hundred percent feel bad about what I just said. I did not mean to downplay anything that's happened with the police and, you know, Black Lives Matter and any of that stuff. Um, racism is very real in this country, just as it is there. I'm just trying to say that as an HR employee dealing with people who I would categorize as racist based upon life trauma, mm -hmm. uh, it's more complicated than just hating those people. Mm. And it's rough because, you know, like they'll roll up listening to rap music in their truck and then 
I'll see them in Walmart. And if they see a black person in the aisle, they'll go to a different aisle. <laughs> wow. Like I don't have language to interpret what they think. Like it's, it's very difficult to understand their position. Yeah. I, well, I can't imagine. Okay. So um, continue on about uh, labor. And just so that was just to say that they have a reason for coming here and working these 20 hour days because their families are at risk of violence. Their families have no way to make money. They're literally coming over here to send money back to their families. I've got one guy. Yeah. I've got one guy who's here and not married, but he's sending all of his money back to his girlfriend and her three kids. (laughs) Like these people want to work and make money and we'd go to extreme measures to make sure that they have a good life here. Like a lot of people, and this brings us into the corporate talk, put like 12 guys to an apartment. They bring over these H2A people. They put like 12 guys to an apartment. They have one fridge. They have no car. They bust them to the grocery store. And we have houses, like we have houses that we put one guy to a bedroom with multiple fridges, like everyone has a pickup, they can go wherever they want. Like we bring over immigration labor and we go to extreme amounts to make sure that they enjoy their time here and that they're comfortable and that, you know, they're getting as much out of it as we are. Mm Mm-hmm. And basically we're employing people who need the jobs and they love what they're doing. They love farming in the sense that my dad loves farming in a way that I don't even think that I love farming. He loves farming in the hobbyist sense of the word. Like it's the only thing he wants to do is row crop irrigate farm. That's it. And that's all these guys want to do that are coming over to work. And it's hard to find that in the existing American labor pool. And it's probably not only in South Africa, but that's the the visa program that's working for us at this moment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, this There's this concept of work when it comes to passion. You know, it's because I'm passionate about a lot of things that I don't make money for. Um, and it's very, I think it's very rare and it's really, it's really special, right? I have friends that absolutely love what they do. Um, I'm ambivalent to my jobs, every job I've ever had. It's pretty much a job. Um, I do it because I can make money at it and I'm good at it. But at the end of the day, I don't go home and want to talk about running my small business. I don't go home and want to talk about all of this. You know, I want to talk about mountain biking and skiing and music and philosophy and all these other things, which has absolutely nothing to do with my job. And so it's really cool when you have the intersection of something that somebody is really good at, they can make good money for it and they're passionate about it. Um, and I think that though, just because of the, the physical requirements of the job, it's probably really hard to find, as Logan said, coddled American kids to want to get out there and bust their ass 16 hours a day. Cause it's hard. I've, I've worked, I've worked on farms before I've done a lot of hard jobs. My first job in high school was roofing houses in West Texas heat you know, um, it was hard to find people for that job too. <laughs> but that's right. I didn't sign up for that one being a, the light skinned ginger boy that I am. There's, there's no roof, uh, rooftop 
was a, an enemy for me for sure. <laughs> Public um, enemy number one. <laughs> I I wonder too how much because we we have a system here in this country where uh, we discuss this a lot on the podcast of like how much of it. Why do we see these large urban areas that vote primarily blue versus the uh, rural areas that vote red? Um, and I wonder how much of that is because that system. When you have that many people kind of piled up on each other, you kind of are dependent on the system taking care of you because you don't know who your neighbor is. You don't know who the bad actors are in your neighborhood because you couldn't possibly know everybody in your neighborhood like you can in a small uh, rural area. Um, and I, I wonder just how much in general as a country, our drive to this kind of more urbanization and, and larger governmental system has pulled away what would have been a potential labor force of a generation ago, you might have had a, a larger, more robust hiring uh, potential for young Americans who were looking to get into farming. Where now, young kids—I I don't run into young kids that want to be farmers. You know, there's a, a couple of the kind of subvert uh, libertarian circles who desire to get away from modern society and go out into a cabin in the woods and and do some sustainable farming. But even those guys aren't talking about commercial farming, about making money doing it and, and adding into the system. Um, and it's just something you're, you're way more likely to get a kid that wants to be a YouTube star than they want to be a farmer someday. Sure. So subsistence farming is the guy who wants to move off into the woods in Colorado and grow only what it takes for him and his family to live. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's interesting talks and interesting arguments for doing that on the community level. Mm -hmm. you know, like in these inner city places where they're doing these rooftop farms and all this sustainable vertical indoor uv light type food production and i do think that in the future like that's going to become a huge part of what the american standard diet consists of right the you're new hanging get, gardens of babylon <laughs> you're going to get boutique meats grown on ranch land high yeah. alpine valleys yeah why, did, why does that skyscraper smell like shit well that's the cattle production skyscraper no, I mean, the, the cattle production <laughs> always come from the boondocks. I mean, boondocks is probably the wrong word. I use the word boonies too frequently, but <laughs> we, Sticks. Uh, yeah, there is that desire. I feel like, or at least in the circles that most farmers are exposed to, there's a lot of social media programs developing around marketing this this freedom lifestyle around buying 500 acres somewhere and growing your own food and raising animals and all this stuff and that that conversation is largely devoid of the actual discussion of producing food for the population mm -hmm. like at some point you're going to have to manufacture food Right. If you're the guy who's doing the sustainable thing and you've got enough chickens to produce 12 eggs a day and you got a couple rows of corn and a couple rows of tomatoes, you're not feeding anybody but you and you're you're only looking out for the people you're in your immediate area, which is great. And it's not bad to be non-dependent on the food growing system if you can stand to do that. But we certainly don't have uh, the land, especially in these super dense areas for for them to be able to do that for themselves. You're going to have to have some kind of corporate level of farming to, to sustain it. And not only going to have to, I mean, we have had some of the oldest things we find. You go back to Gobekli Tempe is one of the oldest 
uh, archaeological digs we've dug up, what are we digging up there? It's all farmland. It's all grain silos and beer, beer storage. And it's, again, it's food production that we have to, even back before we had written history, we have been dependent on this farming system to produce a, an excess of crop. It has a lot to do with the evolution of humanity. I mean, I love Yuval Noah Harari's books, mm-hmm. like Homo Deus. And, oh, he's fantastic. Know, oh, my gosh. Sapiens. Let's not nerd out. Yes. <laughs> and just in understanding the evolution of agriculture, and why it's important. And then like the history of famine in the world. What happened after World War II resulted in the largely discussed farm subsidies that we have today, where the gov- the government, the federal government subsidizes farmers to a certain extent in order to take risk off of their back so that those people who know how to grow food aren't so subject to changes in the weather. And so that we have a more stable food supply in the United States. That being said, it would be nice that would it would be nice if average consumer American guy wanted actual food and not corn syrup. That's where the the farmer's hands are tied as far as local nutrition goes. It's all about demand. When people want fast food and soda pop. Yeah, it's not because Bob chose corn to force corn upon Americans. It's because I drink three Dr. Peppers a day. It's American force corn corn. upon you. Is that a pretty accurate description of it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We could grow so much more with the land and the water that we have, but people don't, it's not the system. It's not the agreed upon idea of what it is to live an American life right now. And corn itself, if I remember correctly, is not a particularly dry land crop, right? So this is not something that... It uses a lot of water. Right. So especially in West Texas, this is probably not the ideal crop to be growing, I would assume. It dries out the aquifer. Mm-hmm. Soaking it all up. Yeah, that's, that's terrifying. Where, I mean, you talk about sustainability and we're talking about running out of water in some of the largest food producing areas in this country. You might ask yourself, why do we grow corn and cotton? I listed out like four crops that we grow, but alfalfa and wheat aren't rotation crops. Wheat is a cover crop that we use as a practice for sustainability that occasionally we take to grain based on market prices. But the cotton is our other cash crop. So we flip the corn acres to cotton acres because cotton is a water saver. Cotton Mm -hmm. utilizes very little water and very little nutrition from the soil as opposed to corn. And so we can't all grow cotton 100% because cotton's a very risky crop. It's a much harder crop to grow. It's much more delicate. If you get a hailstorm at a certain growth stage, you will lose your entire cotton crop. Whereas a corn crop that takes a hailstorm at a certain stage can bring itself back to life. Do you guys use any of the hail cannons on your cotton crops? Is that something you guys have implemented just out of curiosity? No, it is not. Uh, No, at one point I was obsessed with cloud seeding as like Mm -hmm. a podcast topic that I heard on some science. It was probably Science Friday. (laughs) 
But they were talking about cloud seeding. I was like, oh, I've solved our drought issues. We can just seed clouds. Then I was like, oh, China's <laughs> the only one that does that. We're not allowed. <laughs> I don't know the science. I stopped, I stopped looking it up after that. Once you realize it was not not usable for yourself. Yeah, and I wonder how much that stuff too. I mean, the, the cloud seeding is still a pretty new thing. I know there's a, an area in Dubai where I think they make it rain weekly just to like force it to rain because they're in a desert and they want to have all their uh, river attractions filled up all the time. Um, there's but we don't really know the really long works. term. They do it in Colorado. Right, right. Mm-hmm. They do yeah. it. Uh, they do it kind of in the uh, southern part of the Rockies in Colorado. And actually, they had talked about doing it here in November, bringing that technology down and trying to seed clouds throughout northern New Mexico because we were in a drought going into the winter. And as um, as we come out of the winter, I mean, we had like thirty five percent of the traditional snowpack this year. And I mean, and there's a reason that New Mexico is on fire. Um, there's there's literally two fires that total 160,000 acres that's less than 25 miles from me in two different directions. Um, there, there's a reason that New Mexico is on fire. And, but that's the thing is that we, they had talked about bringing that technology down to cloud seed to help with the snowpack, but then all of the local hippies got up in arms. And I, I, at this point, I'll take my chances of cloud seeding and the long-term effects than a forest fire that's going to burn myself and this community I love in the next two, you know, like, cause there's, there's a chance that in two weeks, my home's up in flames. I'll take my chances with the long-term ramifications of cloud seeding and I'll have a home. There you go. Uh, Now you mentioned earlier hemp production briefly. Um, with the, the kind of changing landscape, I mean, it looks like the federal government government may, even as soon as a couple months from now, be decriminalizing and recognizing the uh, right for people to start producing hemp. Um, we know that hemp's a really good dry weather crop that is very resilient to that. It's a high yield uh, endeavor. Um, are you guys considering pivoting into that in any capacity in the future? Is that something that's even on your radar? The short answer is not until federal laws around that plant are, you know, legalized and that the regulations fall in a way that is friendly to the grower. Which we were definitely concerned about that with the kind of the implementation of this MORE Act. I mean, there's going to be opportunities open up. But how many of those opportunities are only for the nieces and nephews of Congress people? Right. So from a farmer's perspective, I talked about how cotton's a water saver, right? Mm-hmm. And we use that to supplement our corn crop, which is another high-priced crop that does very well in our region with inexorbitant amounts of water. Uh, hemp, if there was the appropriate amount of demand for it, which there should be because you can do all kinds of things with hemp fiber more Mm. than you can do with cotton. It uses less water, I believe than cotton. I'm not the president of the hemp board of, you know, (laughs) any state or whatever like that. But my understanding is that it is a very good low water crop that has more uses than cotton, which is our current low water crop in this area. However, I have firsthand neighbor experience being right next to people who have planted hemp within the last few years. And I became cognizant of certain stories and 
and firsthand testimony about seed fraud and the perils mm. of the current regulatory zeitgeist around hemp plant, uh, you know, and and everything associated with it. The the thing is, I believe I listened to your recent podcast on cannabis and you talked about certain plants that were genetically modified to produce less THC, perhaps. I don't think you were claiming that they produce no THC. Yeah. I don't think they had perfected it to where there's no THC, but at least a, a, a small amount that company I used to work for uh, that produced uh, cannabis medicine, they had regulations that had to be a very low amount THC. So they would GMO it as much as they could to not have THC. And then they would synthesize out the uh, remaining amount if they had to. Right. Okay. So from the farmer's perspective, as far as the seed that's currently available on the market, none of it is regulated by the FDA. None of it has anyone approving what you're buying and drought, lack of rain, stressing the plant spikes THC. Oh, and so if you're growing a hemp plant for fiber, not even for CBD, like CBD may be a byproduct you can sell. But if you're growing it for fiber or CBD, if you stress that plant based upon weather, lack of rain, people think that irrigation is a, a magical key that you have that and you don't ever have to worry about water again. That's absolutely not the case. You have certain amounts of water that you can pump in certain areas and none of it is what you can get in a Goldilocks region of the United States where it rains the perfect amount. And so mm -hmm. stress is always a factor. You can only move that center pivot irrigation system so quickly in a circle before the dry plant gets another shot of water. Mm -hmm. And if you stress your cannabis plant that's not being grown for THC in the current market and you get high THC levels, you have nothing to sell because you live, you can't sell it. Well, I know a couple of guys that are buying it, but, but here's the thing. It's not even though that um, it's not that you're even producing cannabis, it's the hemp and, and that threshold for THC is so low. It's not even like, like you couldn't even, you, know, you could grind it up and smoke it, but you're probably going to get just as high grinding up oregano and smoking that right. The, those thresholds of THC are still so, so low but it's higher than the threshold that the government currently allows. I mean, we're talking about not even 1%. I mean, it, it's a very, very low threshold. Mm. Exactly. So basically there are two things in my mind that would allow us to grow hemp, which would be a great thing. And I am all for it. And that is the government to release the regulations and drop the illegality of THC as well as regulate the seed in the way that we buy pioneer corn seed, we know that it's going to come out of the ground and seed fraud is not a part of it. Like people hate on these large seed companies like Monsanto and Corteva, which is pioneer um, for practices around GMO and chemicals, but they are able to sell us a bag of seed that we know will work. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they didn't exist, you know, people used to buy seed from people in, in carts being pulled by horses around. They were just like, hey, you want some seed? Like maybe it's, maybe it's seed, maybe it's not. And that's, that's the realm 
that hemp farming is currently a victim of, I would say, right. you know, like there's so much seed fraud going around that nobody's willing to put it in the dirt. And yeah. that does sound like something that, I mean, you, you named two conditions there, but I, I almost think that's one condition you just named that if they would open up the regulations on it and allow these larger companies to feel comfortable actually starting to produce it, then there would be an available supply of, of reliable seeds. But for what it is right now, there's not enough of these, these large seed companies that care to even begin producing exactly. it because what's the point? The government's still hamstringing that plant. And until they release the handcuffs on that plant, we can't do anything with it. Yeah, it's a very risky uh, bet as a farmer to try to get into that right now. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Silly. How does, uh, since we're talking about regulations here, um, and we we constantly run into it. I, I, Matt leans a little more minarchist than me. I think I uh, at least like saying anarchist. I don't know if I'm fully an anarchist myself, but I sure do like saying that to people and watching their reaction. Um, how do you feel about the, the regulation market uh, in your business? How much of it, uh, obviously there are some things where it sounds like you feel are necessary or even beneficial, um, but how much of this on a daily basis do you have to spend mind space thinking around these regulations in order to be able to produce your crop and, and ultimately hamstring your operation over there? I think ultimately that's a conversation about the free market of science. You know. Like I do think that lobbyists and special interest groups control way too much of scientific research. And when you ask the question of, you know, thoughts on regulation and government around certain practices, certain chemicals, certain products, it's ultimately a question of science and who's doing the science. And so I would love to have a philosophical discussion about what it would look like in a libertarian society to have science conducted in a way that benefits the population. I mean, that's ultimately what I would like to see is that the population is benefited, not, you know, certain pockets over others necessarily. Okay. Well, let's have that conversation then. Let's do that. <laughs> I'm, 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 okay. I'm open with it. So, I mean, right now the FDA, to my knowledge, is the only one doing the science on whether or not chemical A is safe for food consumption. Where does the USDA step in to this? Because I know that they have some sort of yes. uh, regulatory authority. Um, and I know that there's a really fantastic South Park episode where it's like, this is the FDA's jurisdiction and the USDA shows up and it's like, no, this is ours. Um, so uh, is, does that, does, where does the USDA play into this conversation? Honestly, I deal with so little of that aspect of the farm that I'm probably conflating some of the USDA's roles with the FDA's roles. Okay. And that's fair. No problem, man. Not sure where they divide exactly. That doesn't discredit you. <laughs> yeah. The good news is neither of us know enough about either entity to actually point out those differences to you. So you can speak with confidence. <laughs> and I'm sure Absolutely. a few people do. <laughs> there's this there's this thing called a, a spray applicator's license where you have to go and participate in a class in order to apply these products to your crop as an applicator. And if you run a farm, you can have a license and employ people beneath you to apply the actual product as long as you're overseeing it. 
but I don't have one of those licenses. <laughs> that will give you an idea of how much I'm familiar with what the FDA actually does in regards to glyphosate or anything else. But <laughs> I have more knowledge about it than the average bloke. But yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. Um, so I mean, when we talk about um, this idea of libertarian food and the the economy of free science, do you think that it would have? I mean, where does it really start with that conversation? Where does that conversation need to start? Does that need to start on the local level? Does it need to start in just like the average American consumer? Um, I know that, of course, like special interest and lobbies um, drive everything in this country. But um, I guess maybe another question is like, what do you think the standard American diet, how much would that be affected if you didn't have the special interest in the lobbyists that uh, that we're dealing with today? You think exactly would Sorry, go ahead. Exactly the right place to start. That's exactly the right place to start is what should we be eating? Okay. And what should we be producing to do what with? Those are the questions. Because right now, I can guarantee you that we're not eating the right stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we are not producing goods that are 100% efficable to the best species that we could possibly imagine as humanity like the conversation about what food will look like in a hundred years is the same conversation you're talking about having mm. Mm. and it won't be the same yeah and that, that's a really interesting point is then how long does how long does king corn reign um is it is so what is what is corn used for? I'll ask you that. I mean, well, so I mean, corn is pretty much used in everything, yeah, especially every, and it's syrup, and, every cereal, every yeah, any anything well, that you corn have byproducts in your right are now. A, a huge ton. I mean, I have no idea if I if I went to my cabinet, I would say that corn is probably the second or third ingredient, if not the first ingredient in several things. Just just like right off the top of my head, if I had to guess, I mean, I know it's used. Uh, of course, people eat corn, but then it's also used for um, feedlots. I mean, that's a huge other market of corn is actually being able to provide feed. Let me ask and, you this. Okay. Are, are you both aware? I, I imagine you are, but are you both aware? And I, I'm also kind of asking this to the listener. Are you aware that sweet corn is a different plant than the corn that I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. If you buy a can of corn to eat at Thanksgiving, that's a different plant than the one I'm talking about. Okay. I did not know that. That is absolutely true. Sweet corn is a different plant than is used to feed cattle, than is used to make tortillas or chips or corn syrup or ethanol. Sweet corn is purely a food corn, as is popcorn. It's a completely different breed of plant. Okay. And most of the United States corn production is not that most of the United States corn production is corn for either syrup, ethanol, cattle feed, those three. Right. Food corn that is not sweet. I want to establish this one last thing. Food corn mm -hmm. that is not sweet corn is used in masa, which makes tortillas and chips. Gotcha. So if you were to ask me what I think, corn should be used for i.e not sweet corn it would be tortillas and chips 
or perhaps even limiting that to tortillas, depending on how healthy the population wants to be. Tortillas and some cattle finishing, perhaps. But that's a discussion on what meat should taste like. Mm. <laughs> Hitting us with a bunch of knowledge, man. Yeah, and, and obviously we alluded to it, but it, take the time to do that if you're listening to this episode and just go pull out any syrup or sauce that you have in your cabinet and take a look. And there's a really good chance you're going to see corn syrup on there. Uh, and it's not it, good for you. <laughs> no, it is not. Uh, <laughs> it is interesting how, uh, how much that's proliferated our site. I, I was reading an article on that the other day where there's, it's starting to show up in like our genetic makeup, even that we're starting to, to, incorporate this crop into what we are as people we have so much of it that we're consuming uh it's just kind of alarming to see that we're changing our own genetics on a level from the the amount of consumption that we're putting into this one thing our bodies are evolving to incorporate basically raw corn syrup at this point uh <laughs> this is not uh not super encouraging <laughs> absolutely not and so yeah factory farming Factory farming is what's required in order to produce the amounts of corn syrup and corn for cattle that are required currently by our American global demand, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And how difficult do you think that would be if, if you were the czar of farming tomorrow for America and you were in charge of creating a, a healthier diet? Um, this isn't something I don't, that we can pivot off of tomorrow. Even if we, as a nation came out and president Biden said, we have to stop consuming corn at the, the level we are, we're going to start regulating these markets. I mean, is there something that could be pivoted to, is there an option other than just simply going to a more natural food source? First of all, let's establish the complication of the topic. I am 100% willing to admit that this topic is going to be far more complicated than I can explain or that I am even conscious of. Mm. The restructuring of the American diet and the restructuring of the American agricultural system in the same way that Ukraine has made it apparent that fucking with anything in the world messes up so much shit. You have no idea the implications of making a small change to the global ecosystem. But this is the way that it currently exists. And the way that it currently exists is not the way that is best necessarily. But there will be pain involved in change. That's what grieving is. And so if we're going to change global demand for something, it's going to hurt. I mean, that's what the whole discussion around you know, gasoline, electric cars, all this stuff is, it's pain. And if you want to talk about changing the American diet, you've got a lot to discuss around pain and human suffering and what that entails. And it, it boils down to individual anecdotes. Like if you want to talk about demonizing dairy milk, because of whatever reason. There are many things we can use to demonize it. Ultimately, you're talking about ruining a family's livelihood. Mm -hmm. 
And it's extremely important to remember that. And at some level, you have to be okay with doing that if you want to discuss an alternative. And that's why I'm anonymous right now is because I'm talking about my neighbors. I'm talking about myself. If you want to talk about changing something, you're talking about killing something. That's interesting too. I wonder how much the uh, the turnover cost is too, because a lot of this farming equipment is specifically designed for a crop. It's not like you can use the exact same kind of harvesting method for your corn that you use for your cotton. You, you have to have different equipment for each. So to to also pivot off of that, I mean, how much sunken cost goes into just simply changing the way your industry produces as well. Uh, it It's difficult. There you go. Let's talk about, let's talk about, we, we established the difference between sweet corn and quote unquote regular corn. Let's talk about corn for cattle feed for meat production and corn for cattle feed for dairies. Okay. It's not the same. When you talk about corn feeding beef to turn into steaks or burgers, you're talking about a finishing feed that they're going to feed those cows at some point in their growth stage to infuse the meat with a certain flavor that they find markets well or is pleasing to the general population. And so you're talking about corn grain feeding those cattle. What's largely fed to dairy cattle is something called silage. And silage is where you take the whole plant, not just the grain, but you wait till the grain's like what, you know, in fruit terms would be not ripe. It's not dried down to the point that you could harvest it as regular corn grain. You take the whole plant when it's wet and you grind it up into mush. And then you feed that mush to the cows. And when you think about milk production, it's not seasonal. These factory dairy farms produce milk at the same rate all year long. They have to, to stay in business, to meet demand. And what does that require of the corn farmer who is choosing to use his underground resource, the water, for corn silage as opposed to something else? It means that you can produce, corn's not the only silage crop. Silage basically means any nutritious thing, and some are better than others, mixed in with the vegetation that it's grown upon. They harvest that all year long. In the winter, they do it largely with winter wheat or you know, various other things. And they feed those cattle year round. Basically, you take your watering window, you enlarge it, and you use more resource. And so farm ground to support dairy production is one of the most wasteful in regards to the nutrition of the soil because you're leaving no organic material. You're never leaving the ground fallow. You're always growing something and removing it. And when people like Sadhguru on his recent uh, Save Soil uh, tour that he did is talking about, we only have 45 harvests left 
in the global agricultural resource, he's saying that we are extracting all that the soil has to give and we're giving nothing back. Mm. And that is not something that a sustainable farm is doing. People need to realize that just because your farm is so many acres or above doesn't mean that you aren't performing sustainable practices. Sustainable practices include leaving the ground fallow, returning organic material to the soil, paying attention to your soil health, fertilizing, be it synthetic or not. And a lot of people aren't doing any of that. They are just raping the ground and churning out crop after crop after crop so that people who are also good people who have children to provide for can make things like milk to provide them to the global demand. What is that term? I'm not familiar with fallow. That means you grow nothing. To allow it to have time to reincorporate the nutrition into the soil. Okay. So very philosophical. What is time? (laughs) So imagine a length of time and cut that time in half and say, I'm going to drink water from this glass for 2.5 out of five minutes rather than five out of five minutes. Fallow is the other two and a half. And if you're not giving your ground time to be fallow, you're using twice as much resource in the span of 50 years, but you're also not giving the ecosystem that exists within the soil time to react and you're not giving it food. Like the bacteria in the soil, the bacteria in your gut has to be fed. Mm -hmm. Like we don't realize these things are tiny little microscopic worlds that we have no awareness of. And and those exist. I mean, in all, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I, there's one of my favorite books I've ever read was teeming with microbes and it was all about um, it was all about just microbes in soil and how you can create those right. And when I spent my my time out in California, we would always do sp- uh, specific teas that would help create um, fungus that then would allow the bacteria to eat those, and then those waste products would support protozoa. Right? It was this really cool um, ecosystem that you're creating. In, in, in our case, and like every individual pot, but in your case, it's just kind of the ground. And that was, you've said, you've said a lot of things that kind of alarmed me, um, to be honest, where you talk about 45 harvests left. Um, and I know that might not be just like, oh my goodness, we're all going to starve in 45 years. Um, humans are extremely good at adapting, but it is quite alarming to know that we are using so much of our precious resources so, you know, food in our soil, water, which, you know, it took how many, how many millions of years did it take for the Ogallala aquifer to, you know, charge up and how was it created? Who knows, but to drain it in the span of a hundred years, we're certainly not going to be able to replace that. And it's like, so what is now the highest and best use of our time? And what is the highest and best use of soil? And what is the highest and best use of water, especially when it comes to 8 billion people? 
And you said change is hard and that it is a grieving process. And I, I, I've appreciated this conversation because you are really dang smart, man. Um, so how do, how do we, how do we shift? Because changing this means radically hard changes in, in the way that I live, in the way that you live, in the way that these people that have made, they're trying to make their living with. And I, I think that a lot of people don't even understand what you said is like to advocate for change is to advocate against someone's livelihood. Absolutely. I, I think ultimately we're going to be eating bugs. <laughs> do you say, bugs. do you, or do you say that sincerely? Honestly, I do a little bit. And, and, and I know that you're not, you don't fall into like the Bill Gates type. Oh, everyone will eat, need deep bugs. Um, I know no, that you're no, coming no. from a very genuine place. Do you think I'm that not is alarmist? I don't I don't think we should be alarmist. Here's a theory, okay? When people talk about meat production and you know, vegans, I was vegan for a, a small amount of my life. I didn't eat any meat at all. And that was based largely around health. I was losing a bunch of weight. I was feeling great. Uh all the while I was selling corn to feedlots to produce factory farm beef and so say what you want about who i am as a person however i was largely doing that because i had nothing else to grow because of market demand and i have 24 families that depend on this farm succeeding and so it's complicated once again to that point however i would say that a sustainable beef market, a sustainable meat market, chicken, uh, hogs, hogs are factory farming. Hogs is atrocious. If you do any resources into that, terrible into that, it's absolutely, you, you turn off the web browser. And so sustainability in that sense means higher meat prices. Mm -hmm. It means actually ranching these animals, not factory farming them in feedlots and closed warehouses with vents that if they shut off, everything dies. Okay. So it means higher meat prices. And what do higher meat prices mean? People eat less meat, which is good for them. <laughs> People eat way too much meat. Honestly, you should be eating way more vegetables than you eat meat. And if you're eating more meat than you're eating vegetables, Carnivore diet aside, you know, it's not good for you. I would argue. And all views expressed on this podcast are uh, backing the views of the against the mob. Not all views are shared. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I'm one of those for sure. I've tried to make a more conscious effort in recent years. And, and thankfully, I uh, come from a background of cooking and, and I'm a, a pretty exceptional cook if I do toot my own horn. Um, that I've been able to make vegetables appealing in my household, but uh, you're definitely right. I, I grew up in a, the kind of nutritional uh, lack of education where I, my favorite story is I was eating an avocado one day as a snack. I just peeled it and was eating it like an apple. And my mom came in and said, and let me know that there's too much fat in an avocado and I shouldn't <sighs> be eating that much avocado. And then I'm sure I had a chicken fried steak with fries later for dinner. A nice, healthy, hearty West Texas meal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's um back to what you're talking about though about like higher food prices. That's a that's a real honest conversation that we need to have 
as American consumers is, are we willing to actually endure the higher food price to get us to a better tomorrow? Because I think in theory, a lot of people will say um, when this is an ethereal concept, when it's out there and you're talking about in the abstract, they say, of course, I'd be happy to pay higher prices if it meant better quality. But when it actually comes to it, when you go to the grocery store and you see Tyson chicken versus your um, free range chicken, and it doesn't have to be organic because I'm a firm believer that the organic label is a bunch of shield too. Um, But even just like knowing that it was produced by your local, your local chicken farmer, and you've got to pay $4 more for that pack of chicken breast. And they're not nearly as big because they're not, you know, pumped with all of those hormones. Do you actually make the choice to buy the more expensive, smaller chicken breast or not? Because a lot of people, it sounds nice and we'd like to placate ourselves. And I mean, I've got a freezer full of elk and I think, and it's fantastic. This elk was shot up in the highlands where I'm at. It was shot by a buddy. I know the person that processed it, but when, when it came time to pay for that 50 pounds of meat, it was not cheap. You know, I mean, it, it, it averaged out to where I was paying like 10 bucks a pound for the ground elk, let alone what it was for the steaks and the roast. You know, that was a, it was a pretty hefty meat bill. But at the same time, it's nice though, because one, it's just, it's, it's fantastic meat. But then two, it, it helps, it helps alleviate, you know, being part of the solution. So to speak, I don't say that to toot my own horn. It's just this, this concept of like, when it comes to it, do you actually vote? Because we vote with our wallet. Are you actually willing to make that vote when it comes down to it? Because inflation's going up, wages are stagnating. Um, if because they're not keeping up with inflation, your dollar's not going as far. And so now you have the choice to make. And I know a lot of people would like to make the choice, but when it comes down to feeding your family of four, right? It's just a small group here in this household, mm-hmm. it's easy to feed two. It's it's you know, it's it's a lot more expensive to feed four. And to point earlier, it's a decision that most of us have already made. That we can talk about how we want to change the sustainability and, and turn it around all we want. But when you go to the grocery store and you buy five different multicolored cereals for your kids, you just voted for corn syrup three times. Absolutely. And also, Matt, I think you mentioned previously before the episode that you know, you worked fast food for a little while or something. You worked at McDonald's, was it? I did. I had a small stint there. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that appropriately priced food, meaning non-factory farmed food, means no fast food. Yep. Like you can verify, what is a fast food restaurant? It's finding the cheapest labor you could possibly find as few of them as possible. Like you go into a, a, a what's a, what's a burger at the end of the day, there's <laughs> one guy in there that takes your money and then goes back there and makes your burger and he's making minimum wage. Right. Mm-hmm. And what are the ingredients he's dealing with? He's offering you a 99 cent burger. Right. How, how nutritious can that 99 cents burger be? None of that is possible without factory farming, meaning raping of the soil and exploitation of the animals that you're turning into food. And I'm not to say that we shouldn't turn animals into food, but I am saying we shouldn't rape the land and we shouldn't exploit these animals. 
Mm-hmm. If you've ever been to a feedlot, I mean, very few people who aren't raised around feedlots or chicken farms or hog farms can go to one of those places and not become an activist immediately. Yeah, they're pretty pretty rough scenes for sure. There's uh, often just the cesspool of, of runoff and excess from the, the uh, producing process. And, and that is a rough, right. abrasive smell for somebody who's never been around it before. Right. And if you go and you, you buy a McDonald's, you know, double quarter pounder, that's the reason they exist is because we built this system for that. Cause that's mm-hmm. how people are eating. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. And even that itself is, has kind of run its course as, as someone who works currently in the restaurant industry and has for a decade now, uh, there's starting to become this spearhead issue where the, I mean, we're hiring kids that are 16 years old who've never worked a day in their life, who aren't really interested in working, but mom and dad pushed them out the door and made them. And we have to start them off at 15, 16 bucks an hour. Now. I know you said minimum wage for those fast food workers. No, and I don't work for a fast food restaurant, but it's not a fine dining restaurant either. It's kind of that fast, casual uh, in between mm-hmm. sort of thing. And I mean, our, lowest paid employee in that building is probably making $15 an hour. So people have this image that, oh man, they're really taking advantage. I can't believe this costs this much money. But in reality, it's like, man, I ran 20% labor today. So a quarter of what I made before I even considered the food costs, the electricity, the water, liability, all that kind of stuff just went into paying this 16 year old kid who hasn't put down his goddamn iPhone in an hour and a half. <laughs> mm-hmm. Robots are good. <laughs> oh good but don't have that uh that delicate touch which is one that that goes missing too is that you know there's a lot more to farming than just a a combine going through the fields and pulling up all the cotton there's a there's still a a level of sophistication and nuance that you need in order to produce these things that cannot be replicated by a machine at least not right now i'm not worried at all about people losing the opportunity to have a job on a farm to a robot. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a concern that anyone should have. You can, I'll say this, America, you can always come work for a farm, but you might not like it very much. <laughs> no, that's it's not that's, as good as being a, a Facebook moderator. So what about, um, I know that we had talked about earlier. Um, what about carbon credits? Because that that plays a large part into uh, your industry. Very interesting, and it's something that I don't have a huge understanding of, and I'm sure that most people um, kind of skim away from the carbon credit conversation. Um, so is this something you wouldn't mind talking about? Absolutely, it's relatively a new thing, and so I will postmark everything I say right now with a with an air of opinion <laughs> and perhaps illegitimacy. But, I mean, people are having Zoom meetings right now amongst, you know, 30 farmers at a time with brands like Pioneer and Monsanto and all these people putting on webinars so that farmers understand what's happening. And it's legitimately scary because if you do any research into, into the matter and you don't just sign up for a program, you quickly become aware of what it actually is. And what what it actually is, is large corporations, I'm a cotton farmer. So I make 
fiber for clothes and other things. Patagonia, for example, I'm not throwing them under the bus. I have their clothes. Patagonia is a company that wants to put forth a good image for sustainability and good quality materials. They utilize cotton in a lot of their materials. And they produce a lot of carbon in manufacturing throughout their supply chain, as does the North Face or many of these other companies. And what carbon credits are, are a way for those companies and others like them and bigger than them to push that. It's risk in the sense that if the public eye is drawn upon that pollution in particular, it's a way to push that risk onto someone else. Okay. It's a way to say, I'm paying these farmers so that I can keep polluting. And it's on those farmers to not pollute. <laughs> that's, that's it in short. I'm paying someone else to not pollute so I can keep doing what I'm doing. Exactly. And where it gets silly is the fact that we are already doing the things that they want to pay us to do. Like practicing sustainable agriculture, which we already do because it's also good for us as the farmer to be sustainable <laughs> and not go out of business in 10 years. And basically, if you want to get into the nitty gritty, it's practices like not plowing your fields, planting cover crops, um, grazing cattle on said cover crops to provide fertilizer. All these things which are part of the retinue of an average good farmer to do, they want to pay us to do. With the caveat that if we are already doing them, we are not eligible for the carbon credits. <laughs> there it is. I was wondering why you didn't. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I thought it sounded all gravy. I'd love to say it's like, yeah, you just get another paycheck. Place. <laughs> I am currently not a participant in any carbon credit program. Because I'm already doing all the good things. Because you have to show the, the changeover rather than... You have to show... They are only concerned with showing the improvement. Yeah. yeah. Not that, makes sense. that which is already good. <laughs> huh. Don't you love that? So they're essentially, by doing so, they're vault uh, giving money, vaulting up the... Which makes sense. Probably if we're not as good. <laughs> If they are only interested in continuing their pollution practices, they aren't interested in paying us to do what we're already doing. They're only interested in offsetting their pollution with additional non-pollution. So it makes sense mm -hmm. from that perspective. But when you realize that all they're doing is pushing risk from the corporation onto individual family level people, <laughs> that it becomes fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so what are the consequences of, of... Oh, my gosh. If you enroll in one of these things, say I'm someone who is practicing conventional tillage. I'm raping the land. I'm not putting anything back. I have the utmost capacity to capture carbon from my operation because I'm doing ultimately a very shitty job. 
And I say that probably, I shouldn't say that. A lot of the country does these things. And that's why Sadhguru is going around the country saying, we need to not do this. We need to practice more sustainability because like in the corn belt where they only can in their minds produce corn, they do, they produce corn back to back to back to back. They remove all the trash. They, in some cases, apply very little fertilizer. They, they're not taking care of the ground. In some places, the majority of farmers very much are. However, in these places where Patagonia can come to these guys and say, here, we're going to do this. These people are selling more than they realize. They're giving these companies that are selling the carbon credits oversight rights, rights to future profits that are in the fine print mm. of these agreements, mm. carbon rights. Like, what is the carbon right? Throughout, throughout eternity, the ability to sell carbon credits on a certain property. Okay. Some of these agreements not the best ones, you know, certain farmers, farmers have been taken advantage of and had, you know, you could say future ability for them to make money off their land has been stripped from them in the fine print of these agreements. And it gives these companies the ability to do oversight on them and not only refuse to pay them for the carbon credit program they've signed up for based upon some small issue that they had in the year where they had to do a certain thing. It's very hard to no-till something and never have to plow it. If you're producing crops, like sometimes you have to plow something up. Uh, no-till is a very complicated thing. Cover crops are a very complicated thing. Um, I would say right now we're 50% no-till. We have to plow our corn ground or we can't plant it with cotton because there's too much trash. We leave the trash so that it incorporates into the soil and it lies fallow over the winter and the microbial processes in the ecosystem can do their thing as we do our pre-water. It's got organic material that's being, you know, put back into the soil, mm -hmm. which is also true if you're not, if you're no tilling, you're leaving all that root material in there. You're not disturbing it. You're not turning anything up and exposing it to UV light and killing things. There's a high level of complication in science in regards to these things. But when you sign up for one of these programs and you say, Patagonia, I will take the weight of public scrutiny off of you. It puts all the risk on the farmer and these companies have immense power to disrupt these farmers livelihood and so every meeting that i've been a part of is like just wait you know because the the this is going to be funny for you guys but they're they're all like just wait because the federal government is going to provide a carbon credit program that will be safer for you to participate in than these free market programs <laughs> oh the irony how funny is that oh the irony yeah, yeah. jesus <laughs> How funny is that? Oh, that is scary. I was wondering too, while you were saying that, it, it uh, made me kind of think of free markets and, and the, in a certain way, by adding these 
carbon credits in this kind of thing to, to make the land more sustainable, you are kind of keeping afloat these bad actors within the industry, these people who don't have sustainable farms and would probably wash out a generation because they used up their land. Do you no, think it sense, would? In that sense, it is encouraging people with bad practices to incorporate better ones. Right. So long as they don't screw them on the fine print and take all their property in the end. But yeah, in regards to the farmer, but it is giving said corporations who have these giant factories and are polluting in other ways to continue doing that. They get the green light. Yeah. Yeah. That is concerning. That's one great, uh, all these regulations that do nothing now because they get to pass it on to the little guy. Um, do you think it would be a better way to get at the problem by kind of letting if we say you didn't have this tax credit problem and these farmers were not able to sustain it and kind of leading to the superior producers taking over the market eventually, or is that something that's just way too big of a risk because of the long-term damage done to the soil? I don't know how the reincorporation of the nutrients, how long that takes or how long it takes to turn bad soil into good soil. I think that's ultimately a question about what would public demand look like if there were no things such as the got milk Mm. campaign. great campaign yeah no that's a really good point i mean i saw this um i I think i posted this on maybe it was my personal um instagram page maybe it was the podcast i can't remember but it was this old drug um commercial from the 1980s and it had this pan of oil and then they poured they you know they cracked an egg and it's like this is your brain on drugs and it's funny though because at the same time that they're running those ad campaigns what are they doing? They're running the Got Milk campaign. They're giving us, they're, they're running, oh, sh- cereal is the part of a nutritious and balanced breakfast. So let's pump these kids full of sugars and empty carbs to get them going for their day. You know, it, 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 it's so interesting, though, how much impact just the lobbyist um, influence has on our day-to-day life in ways that you wouldn't even imagine, right? Who, who thinks there's anything, not even sinister, that might be too strong of a word, but who thinks there's anything adverse of a got milk campaign? Shouldn't kids just be drinking their milk right to the average person? That sounds just fine without understanding those long-term implications, especially when it comes to what's it take to feed those dairy cows. Absolutely. I think in regards to me bringing up the got milk campaign is it's largely a topic around special interest groups and lobbyists in the government who their job is not to argue for the well-being of the population or argue for the well-being of any particular farmer it's literally to argue for the continuation of a crop And when you realize how silly that is, you you start to think that they shouldn't exist. I mean, there's nothing inherent about humanity that says that we should ingest corn syrup. Mm -hmm. We should be advocating for things that benefit humanity, not things that benefit the status quo. Because ultimately, that's what things like that are doing. They're saying we are doing this this way. We are comfortable with it. We are producing things. We're making a living for our families. We don't want to change no matter what. 
And so we are going to pay money on a monthly basis to these groups who go to Washington and advocate for our way of doing what we're doing, no matter what harm it causes or no matter what better alternatives might be out there. Right. And from a business stance, that does make point. It uh, makes sense because they have large apparatus that are built around the production of a certain thing, or they're dependent on running the business sure. a certain remember, way would cost them to shift. So, overhead. Yeah. Remember, like we bought mm-hmm. seven strippers at $600,000 a piece. We are highly invested in cotton. We are just God, as I've highly never invested spent that in kind of money cotton. on a stripper. Yeah, I know. But I'm sorry. <laughs> that was, I didn't react as I wanted to. <laughs> Okay. He's just a guy now. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Derailed you. No, no, no. To me, you know, at a very surface level, cotton is almost a more moral crop than corn is. I shouldn't use the word moral. I don't agree with that, but Ethical, there's more maybe. good things. To, there's more good things to be said about cotton than there are about corn that's not corn for tortillas. Like I would grow corn if the only use that it was going to was finishing out some grass fed beef on a ranch or producing tortillas. I freaking love corn tortillas. <laughs> corn tortillas. <laughs> if I go to a taco shop, I'm always ordering corn tortillas. I love them. And if corn was only used for that, I would be gung ho. Don't fry them up. I won't, you know, it's going to be good. And so, the problem exists in the excess of moderation. When we start telling people that not only is milk good, but you need to drink eight glasses of it a day. And the government is telling you that that's the problem. Right. You've driven this artificial demand now created this market for something that would not have existed on its own. Had you simply left it free? Eat beef. Beef is not only good once a day, but you should eat all beef. You should not eat green beans. Right. Or make sure you have a side of green beans with your steak tonight. It's dumb (laughs) as fuck. (laughs) It literally is. And the government is 100% listening to these people who are saying these things and allowing them to dictate what is advertised to the population, i.e. the Got Milk campaign. Beef, it's what's milk dinner. Milk is the only way to make your kids' bones strong. My kids have never had a full glass of milk. They've never broken a bone. The oldest is seven. I mean, we get enough calcium from other things. I mean, cheese, I freaking love cheese. You don't need it for every meal. However, blasphemy. I will say, blasphemy. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for coming on the podcast. We're done. <laughs> yes. I love cheese. I'm all for the production of cheese. I am not for the consumption of it as a primary food source. I will cite a book that I read when I was in my vegan phase called The Cheese Trap that I'm sure has some things in it that are skewed science and whatnot. But in that book, I have verified it through personal experience. I believe it's a true statement that casein, the active protein within milk and cheese, is more addictive than heroin. (laughs) I can't remember the exact quote. 
And have you done heroin to confirm, sir? Okay, I'm sorry. I have not done heroin. <laughs> I've done other drugs. I know what addiction feels like. I was addicted to cheese. I drank three milk glasses a day, like full milk glasses for my entire youth up until the point that I was 25. And I had a plugged nose for 25 years. And I stopped drinking milk and my sinuses cleared up. I had fungus on my elbow that went away. I was about to say, you you told us that you found out recently you were lactose intolerant. Are you just spending an hour on the toilet every morning for your entire year? No, I stopped drinking milk and I lost 20 pounds. Whoa. My parents will not consider not having dairy milk in their diet because they are addicted. They fed their their, uh, Dachshund cheese for dinner. Velveeta, they would cut it at a little brick and feed their dog. And that dog was so overweight, it died seven years early. And they eat cheese on everything. And they think that if they don't, they're going to die. Well, I don't think there's many more things in this world more American than dying seven years early from overconsumption. So it's a good American dog story there, if you ask me. I'm just I'm just saying that a good human rule is everything in moderation and if our advertising and our lobbies and our special interest groups are pushing anything more than moderation, they're not giving you truth. They're giving you status quo. They're promoting yeah. the status quo. Yeah, it's, it's profiteering propaganda. There you go. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. And you wonder, too, how much of that, I mean, it, these problems compound and, and pile on each other once you have gone on this giant campaign to get people to drink more milk how much more milk did we need to produce how many shortcuts did we take to produce that milk how many different gmos were introduced into it so that you could have larger milk producing cattle that maybe you're producing a less healthy product in the long run because we've kind of forced this new thing and so not only are we drinking more milk now it's probably less nutritious than it was at one point in time when we began this campaign yeah if there are any listeners that want to take something away in a short soundbite from a farmer who produces largely 50% corn for the production of cattle and dairy milk. If there's anything that they want to take away, it's that if you stop drinking milk or eating cheese five times a day, if you stop eating fast food burgers, I can grow something else. And I want to grow something else. (laughs) Give me a market incentive to grow something else. It's your addictions that I'm having to deal with. That's a really good point. Cause I mean, Logan says it pretty much every episode and I agree with them. Incentives matter. And we are, we're, we're driven by those incentives. And this has been a, a super eye-opening conversation. Cause I didn't realize just how much, how much um, the market drives what you do. And I mean, it, it kind of blew my mind that it's like you wake up and grow corn, not because you want to grow corn. It's because I can't stop eating high fructose uh, corn syrup um, with my pancakes, right? Like that's the reason that you have to continue growing corn, even though I do prefer a good maple syrup. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, uh, it is, it is crazy though, how much, um, how, how little we actually understand of the ripple chain, uh, the ripple effect of our, of our actions and how it, how it resonates up and down the scale to where, because people, I, I can already imagine how a lot of people feel about farmers. Like all you have to do is just 
tune in to any liberal media who talks about rural America. You know, they 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 hate us. And I live in a different rural America, but, you know, still kind of the sticks compared to a liberal city. And and it's crazy, though, because they're advocating against the person that one is right now keeping them alive, but two would actually help them meet their goals of a better diet and uh, more sustainable practices if they would change their behavior. Yes. Yeah, yeah especially when you see a, a lot of that crowd that likes the uh, the Satan or the Beyond Meat products, like these things with 27 ingredients, they, they take a lot of farmland to produce all that crazy stuff that they're jamming into one thing to imitate meat. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, the canola oil, like a canola is a, is a monocrop, you know, produced. It's, 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 it's an alternative to corn syrup canola oil, which is a large, I mean, there's other things, not all of those meats are different, but they're, they're not a substitute for factory farming. Uh, they might put the beef industry out of business or raise the price of beef in the sense that, I mean, it would raise the price price of beef more so if you were to turn all of the row crop ground into canola oil ground or vegetable oil ground of any kind to produce these fake meats, then if you were to turn that grassland back into grazing for grass-fed beef. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actual is, grass-fed beef yeah, I know that's, would be uh, more expensive the, if you were eating plant-based beef. Yeah, I know the, the largest yeah. uh, deforesting factor of the Amazon rainforest right now is soybean production. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those things. Sure. Right. The same the same crowd that's really concerned about the the climate change and sustainable farming that might go vegan or then also eating a product that is the, the number one sacrificer of our the lungs of the world, as they say. Yeah. It is pretty interesting too, is because I'm a I'm a seed oil disrespecter, so to speak. I, I, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of seed oils um, because I know that they have they're not good for us. And it's interesting that. That I didn't know that I didn't realize that that was kind of a big part of the producing of fake meat was seed oils. I didn't know that. And so there's then a lot makes, of different oils involved. And then it makes you wonder how good is it for you in the long run? And, and instead, you could just have grass fed beef that's going to be better. And, and I'm not saying it better. won't be, I'm not saying fake meat won't be something that's good for humanity. I'm open to all ideas for a more sustainable future. I said we should be eating bugs earlier. And I said that laughingly, but I'm open to it. If you want me to have a cricket farm, I'll have a cricket farm. Basically, hey. I've, I've got land and know-how and I will put it to whatever use the population wants me to put it to use for. And so, hey, I've been a big advocate. I, I know that if you're allergic to a cockroach you're, or excuse me, allergic to shrimp, you're typically also allergic to cockroach because apparently they're that, that close genetically. Uh, which grosses most people out. But I think, man, if you give me one of those big Madagascar cockroaches, put a couple of those on a skewer, maybe we just have land shrimp. I'd be totally down to try. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be opposed. I love shrimp. So <laughs> <laughs> Pretty tasty stuff. <laughs> it's, it's much more likely in the future that places like where I'm at will go back to boutique meat production, you know, above and beyond beef, even like bison or things like that. High fence, you know, places where the animals can roam, and live out a good life and the circle of life can be what it is without the atrocities that our 
feedlots. Right. Yeah. And it makes you wonder how long, like in that world, what does the, what does the population look like in terms of numbers, right? Because the reason that we have all of these things, and, and who knows, maybe there's a better you could you could use what we have now with a higher and better use to where you could still have um, sustainable beef raising practices and still be able to provide beef for the the nation and the world. I don't know the answer to that, but it makes me wonder though is as if we made that switch um, to these more sustainable practices, grass-fed beef is becomes the norm. How many, how many casualties are there because of this change, right? What is the collateral damage of the global population to actually make these switches? Or, and this now, this is just like a big open-ended question, but, or is there a way, could we pivot with the resources that we have now to sustainably feed the world and get rid of the atrocities of factory factory meat. I don't know. I'm just curious now. I think a, a world that is devoid of these practices that we deem immoral or, or not ideal, these factory practices, largely means that rural America is gone. Like you're going to have homesteads and post offices but all of these communities that stretch across the United States that solely depend on factory farming and row crop exploitation, as it was, yeah, row crop exploitation, if you would like to call it that, those communities go away. The only reason they're there in the first place is because of the economic prosperity brought to them by those things. And that has all sorts of implications that people need to be ready to live with because it will happen either by choice or by running these things dry, either the soy, the soil or the aquifers beneath. Yeah, that's really interesting too. And kind of back to what I was saying earlier about this disconnect between the rural and the urban areas in this country where all of our foods produced out in the middle of nowhere and then shipped into these huge areas who are not able to sustain themselves. Um, I wonder if we've kind of gotten ourselves in this trap as government grows larger and takes on more of a role of being our quote unquote protector and provider that once we've hit this critical mass where the majority of our population now lives in these urban centers and are completely dependent on food that's shipped in, you kind of get caught in this quagmire of do you want to be part of this disgusting factory farming system that you guys all seem to hate, but are 100% dependent on in order to eat. Even if you are eating a vegan diet, you're still hundred percent dependent on the, the factory farming um, mm -hmm. versus do we go back to a system where there is a more sustainable growth. You kind of have to break these big cities up. You, you really can't have that many humans in one place without the factory farming system also walking hand in really? hand with it it's the libertarian dream like your your urban centers will have to sprawl out to provide for local food mm -hmm. production and that's the libertarian's dream it's like government on the local right. community you know less dependence on a central source in the supermarket to get what you need mm -hmm. it's everybody spreads out so they can grow their own food and if you know anyone that has a garden they always have too many cucumbers. Like yep. if you try to grow your own food, you will succeed, but you'll also have to be dependent on your neighbor. 
who is able to grow something different than what you're able to grow. It's community. I mean, there is some highly philosophical pie in the sky ideas around what that might look like and the perils involved, but I would say it's, it's hopeful. I don't know. I mean, it only I don't seems think right it's all doom and gloom when you, when you, when you talk about the dissolution of the available resources and what the future might look like, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I think it might turn out to be something beautiful. Mm. I think I'm with you on that. I, I, I think the, the breaking up of those are, are kind of the way we have to go. I mean, if you really want to live in a free society, if you don't want a, a tyrannical government overlooking every decision you make, then we have to be sustainable. We each have to be able to produce for our own communities uh, because this, this global system is so dependent on inner working parts that it, it is just, it's way too ripe for corruption to come in there and, and screw things up the way it has already. And obviously we're watching the, the repercussions of that now as we're watching giant marketing campaigns to have us consume things we probably shouldn't consume and, and benefits for people who probably don't deserve it based on silly government markers from a central planning standpoint. Yeah, this, um, this has been, this has been a fantastic conversation and I know that we're brushing up on probably two hours. I haven't really been keeping track, but um, you know, I, I like, I like the, uh, and Dunk started this and I, I know that Jamie's um, taken it and we like to use it as well. So give us, give us your white pill, you know, um, what is, what is your white pill of this conversation? I, I know you just said that you're hopeful, but uh, if you got another tidbit for us. I've been meaning to email you guys about this. Actually, I'm familiar with the red and blue pills from the matrix, but I'm not exactly sure what a white pill is <laughs> and you've mentioned pessimistic versus episodes. optimistic essentially yeah. uh, the black pill essentially just uh in the pill analogy it's like completely giving into pessimism that if you're black pilled you don't see in, in in libertarian circles uh black pill would essentially mean i don't see any outlet uh any daylight for us to get out of the tyrannical arm of the state that we're always doomed to this destiny versus the white pill being uh, an example like, oh, well, I think that the Donald Trump presidency really opened up a lot of people's eyes to politics and the similarities between these two parties and maybe will lead to a more libertarian future. So in this context, just what what positives do you see in your industry that you would point to after we just did two hours of doom and gloom about how bad the farming industry is? Uh, what yeah, do you see on the yeah. horizon that gives you hope? I think ultimately the white pill is realizing that we're going to be forced into change, even if we don't choose it, quote unquote, mm. using the illusion of choice. Um, but like I said, sustainability is a problem. And it's a problem that we will solve by hook or by crook. By completely running dry and changing because we have to, or at some point changing because we want to. Mm. But we will change. And it's going to suck. It's going to be a lot more comfortable if we do it before the, uh, the critical moment happens. (laughs) I would argue that. Yeah, I would argue that. Um, but I think the, the optimistic take is that agriculture is not going to be the demise of humanity. (laughs) 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 We're going to figure out a way to feed ourselves with whatever we can. And maybe we get healthier because we can't be gluttonous. 
Yeah, that's that is one thing I, I talk about with people that I'm close to about things I might miss the most in the apocalypse. And it's like decadent over the top meals are definitely mm-hmm. I'm going to miss those right where it's where I've got um, and not to say that you can't eat well in the apocalypse because there are there is the ability to, you know, like fortunately, I live in an area that is plentiful with game. And we do have a growing season, albeit it's not nearly as long as a lot of places, but you can start. I mean, I've got I've got seeds in my windowsill and I'm building my greenhouse right now that in a couple in like a month when it's not as cold outside, I can put the you know, it's like you can grow some food up here and there'll be elk and deer. But I mean, just those good decadent seafood meals with butter and i mean there's there's going to be some sacrifices that i don't get to have in the apocalypse yes i am surf and turf's a little harder to put together it's tough to I'm get no, the lobster and the steak on the plate when you're definitely definitely farmer. no lobster in my diet yeah. in the apocalypse um yeah and also if i'm going to add to the white pill and just advocate for something i'm just going to say plant a garden and save your seeds and try to practice you know sustainability in the sense of you know, what would you do if you couldn't go to the grocery store? Because that will make you a more responsible eater. And that will allow you to demand of me what I want to be demanded of me, which is things that you will, that will enrich yourself rather than providing to a problem. Absolutely. Love it. And this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking your time to come on and chat with us. This has been, I mean, I'd love to have you back for part two um, because you've started to touch on some philosophical um, questions and points that I'd love to just dive into and nerd out about um, and not be so tied to just kind of this, this original conversation that we asked you to come on for. So I really appreciate your time. Absolutely guys. It's been a blast. Logan, what do you got? And I'll take us out. I think that's about it. I, I'm with on. Damn it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize I did that earlier when you said that. Anyway. Um, we can we can just beep them. And clap. <laughs> I think I think Aww. beeps are funny, man. I think beeps are funny. Anyway, I uh, I would probably just add to this uh, uh, what Bob was saying that uh, try some sustainable practice on your own. This, it's not something you're going to be great at, uh, farming and producing your own garden. It'll have its challenges. You'll have times where you think you're doing really well. And then you wake up in the morning and there's 90 caterpillars on your kale plant and you have nothing to harvest at the end of the, the season. Um, but there, there's that learning curve and it's a good time to learn your inadequacies in producing your own food when you're not dependent on it to keep yourself from starving. So these are good lessons to learn now before uh, the inevitable shit hits the fan of our non-sustainable farming practices as a whole, as a society. Uh, It's really good tools to start developing while you have that cushion. Uh, So I would just recommend that if you, if you don't have room to put in a garden, buy a couple planters, try a couple plants out, see what it's like, uh, start to understand just the cycles and, and what a plant needs. Um, it's not too difficult to go to Home Depot and buy a couple boxes, some soil, You're looking at 200 bucks to get everything you need to have a, a reasonable little herb garden, uh, even living in apartments. And uh, I'm, I'm not as I was more foolish than these two gentlemen. And I ran off to the big city of Austin, Texas, and found out that I hate all the 
hipsters and homeless people around me pretty quickly, but uh, I was at least able to put out, you know, a, a kale plant so I could have fresh salads. Uh, I was able to put out some, you know, oregano, uh, some dill. I do that kind of thing. That way, at least I'm not going to HEB to spend $5 for a small packet of oregano when I can just pull some that or some rosemary out of my little garden in the backyard. That's it, man. I like it. And it is. Um, and to close this out, I mean, I think, I think being able to feed yourself is one of the strongest ways to actually break free of what libertarians and freedom loving people preach like society and the system, you know, that, that is kind of the true, um, like, like, uh, Bob said, it is the, like the libertarian dream, uh, where the cities sprawl out and people have to start taking care of themselves. I mean, that is anarchy. That is anarchy manifest and it is a beautiful thing. And so working on just having a small garden is a perfect way to stick it to um to stick it to the system because when they don't have control of your food they don't control you at least in that regard um they still gotta worry about fed boys kicking down your door and stacking up <laughs> and stuff like that and we'll have we'll have other conversations about what to do um i have my it's like alexa oh, the cops man. are here <laughs> and it's like the, well, the we lights didn't even go get into taxes <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get into taxes that's crazy we gotta have a part two yeah, yeah. We'll I think so. I think I, there, I there's a lot of things even on this list we didn't get to. <laughs> I'll put this in the blurb, like at the end of the episode. Why are farms getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger? And the answer is taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I want to know. Regulate the market. You kill the little guy. All right. I'll let I'll let it be. Uh we'll leave it be <laughs> for part two. All right, guys. Uh, thank you very much to our guests for coming on. We really, 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 really appreciate your time and your insights and the conversation. Uh, guys, please go follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at some iteration of Against a Mob. If you liked this conversation, please share it with a friend. I mean, that is the largest way to grow the podcast, is to just share it with one person who you think might enjoy it. Um, and you know what? We're not gonna be um for every Everybody, but if this gets a liberty curious person into the circle and they can go find another podcast or source that they particularly enjoy, then I think that we've done our duty. Uh, we really appreciate you guys tuning in week out. We could not do this without you. Special thanks to our sponsor, Public Kings for Pedophiles. We really appreciate the work that you're doing. Shout out to the No Kings Network. If you are a liberty minded creator who's interested in hopping in the culture war with us, please reach out to myself or Jamie Kane and we can see if we're a good fit because culture is upstream from politics and we must win the culture if we want to win the political battle. And with all that being said, we fight against the mob with people over politics. We will see you next time.